0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah chapter 13, turn there. And I want to open up with a question this morning. Will the universe rearrange itself to give us whatever we want if we exercise the power of positive thinking. There was an article on self.com. You know you're already blessed with that, right? <laughs> that came out last year. It brought up the trend of manifesting among people today. Manifesting is the idea of bringing something you want into existence through the you know, aspirational thoughts and practices. It's nothing new. It has its roots. Um, what goes beyond back before this but popularly in the 19th century new thought spiritual movement which included the belief that our thoughts can influence the material world and essentially that positive thinking is the answer to most of our earthly problems who come up who comes up with this anyway so why the sudden interest in the thought this kind of thought experiment of sorts well uh, this article said some were Again, we're living, the article says, in some pretty unprecedented times. And one of the website's authorities said our sense of ability, our sense of ability has been shaken up, and that can induce feelings of powerlessness and overwhelm. When things feel unstable or unpredictable, it can be tremendously comforting to believe that we have the power to think our way to better circumstances, Listen to it again. It can be tremendously comforting to believe that we have the power to think our way to better circumstances. Or that forces beyond our control and understanding, whether they be a higher power or some other mystical energy, may be working in our favor, end quote. And they tell us we have to exercise faith. Will the universe rearrange itself to give us whatever we want if we exercise the power of positive thinking? What if I told you this is not a new temptation for humanity to think this way? In the Old Testament, there was a people living in uncertain times, meaning more, they felt more unstable. They had returned to their homeland from living in exile for decades. They were still, though, under the control of a major power, they were very concerned about instability and unpredictable challenges. Who were these people? They were the Hebrew people and they had been through pure miraculous things just to return to the land, rebuild their temple, the book of Ezra and the extension of that temple, the book of Nehemiah, the city walls of Jerusalem, back to the days, you know those, back to strengthening those things to help them recenter. And after all those victories and all of that recommitment and glorious worship that took place, what now? Had they learned from the past, you know, what, what put them in exile to begin with? Would they need to put more trust in themselves through positive thinking and ask the universe to then essentially conform to them? I'm doing my good work. I'm doing all these extra things. Shouldn't things be going my way? Ezra and Nehemiah, remind, the book, those books remind us of how God's providence of the whole return back to Jerusalem. Those books remind us that in order for God's true Israel of the heart to be assembled forever uh, more, needs more than, uh, uh, more than just them to be there like physical resources and good, good intentions. These books remind us that we need God to pour out regenerative grace, not just upon a land, but upon sinful hearts of man. And today's text, going back into chapter 13, after Nehemiah left for a period of 12 years, remember, he was there temporarily to set things in order. He still had his job to do back in Persia. He goes away for about 12 years. Um, when he comes back, we discovered last week that things have already been in decline. So, so much so, they even allowed one of their great enemies to have a, a foothold in the temple, a place of, to do business. And the temple ministry had fallen on bad times. So that was the first part we covered last week. But now he finds them doing something. The downgrade, just can, he continues to uh, discover, you know, guys, 12 years, you're already what? Profaning this, this very sign of the Mosaic covenant, the Sabbath. So let's look at Nehemiah chapter 13 and verses 15 through 22. And as you look at the Sabbath text here talking about that, just remember thinking through. Uh, the heart of the issue is one of trusting in God or trusting in self. Putting self at the center or putting God at the center. Okay? Let's look at the text together. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day The Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath? And shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves And guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God. And look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. This is God's word. Amen. If you've been with us in this series very long, you know the people had just a few chapters back recommitted to keep the Sabbath in a public covenant, covenant service. But the drift, as I mentioned earlier, did not take long. Sabbath, the word comes from a meaning to cease or rest. You know, rest sounds nice to us all. But we need to look at the Bible's view. The Sabbath observance placed a clear limit on human autonomy. The Sabbath observance placed a clear limit on human autonomy and trusting in oneself. Do you follow me? One purpose of the Sabbath day is that the people and animals may rest. It's God's kindness. We are are not omnipotent. We are not self-sufficient. We need recovery, amen? Some of you did not go to bed last night. You should have. And we're not to be oppressed by our labors. The rest that God commands is not a cessation of all activity, but an interruption of ordinary labor in the work of of one's daily vocation. And so God gives Israel all its days, but requires that Israel acknowledge this by giving back one in seven. And the Sabbath was a sign of Jewish, the Jewish people's relationship to God. Remember the sign of the Abrahamic covenant circumcision, consecrating Abraham's offspring as God's special possession. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath in which Israel participates in God's own rest to remind them that he is the one who sanctifies them. The sign and picture of the Sabbath reflects how God has rescued them from harsh labor, slavery out of Egypt, and anticipates the future when God's people experience life in all its fullness in his presence. The Sabbath distinguished his people from the nations, and as did his laws more broadly. And so to profane, to mess with the Sabbath day, to neglect it, was to fail to center their lives around God. This was no small thing. Let me say that again. To profane the Sabbath in it, under the Mosaic law was to neglect. And to neglect it was to fail to center their lives around God, who gave them life, who set them apart, all of those things. And it put themselves back at the center. And when we, when we center the universe around us, which the whole world does, by the way, what happens to our lives? Are you that happy when you do that? Are you secure in the midst of storms when you do that? Where is God in your life? Is he asked to serve you, or are, you to, are you at his service? So throughout the sermon, I hope to show you the, the violation of this law and how it reveals a deeper problem of not centering our life on our creator and savior and how the Sabbath actually is a huge pointer to a great grace in people's life through Jesus Christ this morning. Here's the central point if you're taking notes. It's there for you in your bulletin. You fill out the uh, blanks there in the bulletin. Center your life around God and not yourself. Center your life around God and not yourself. That's the simplest way I could put it. Okay? Number one. They all begin with P this morning. Ready? Number one. Profiting. Profiting. Who do, you, who do you treasure is the question here. The feel of the scene goes off from the drama of last week to now discovering more decline and drift. Not only in the temple falling apart in the sense of its function, but man, now they have taken God out of the center. When you have a group of people, uh, you know, uh, you have a group of people you think you share deep, convictional truth with, and then discovering, discover that they're selling out, well, that's very discouraging, isn't it? That's why it's discour... Like, I want to be an encouraging church member. I want you to find me faithful, not perfect. I want you to see me freely talk about repentance with you from my own and sins in my own life. I want you to see me striving after Christ, faithfully showing up where I'm supposed to be. Friends, when we are being when, when members of a church are being unfaithful, do you think they're encouraging their brothers and sisters? No, they're a discouragement because we th- we're supposed to have this commitment to Christ together and we need one another. How discouraging their drift. You see, it's not just about your own personal impact. We impact others' lives. And these people had deeply discouraged Nehemiah and others who were faithful. The Jewish merchants... You know, they didn't want to lose this opportunity. He finds them doing business on the Sabbath. And so here they are, not wanting to miss on an opportunity to make money from the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were quick to make a profit from the Jewish neighbors. You can't help but see the word loading. Look at the text, 15 and through 16, the words loading in, or, and uh, in stores. Maybe your translation says in loads and be reminded of Jeremiah's prophecies and warnings against them decades earlier just prior to the siege of the Babylonians listen to Jeremiah 17 this is what the Lord says watch yourselves do not pick up a load and bring it in through Jerusalem's gates on the sabbath day do not carry a load out on, of your horses excuse me houses on the sabbath day or do any work but keep the sabbath day holy just as i commanded your ancestors they wouldn't listen or pay attention but became obstinate not listening or accepting discipline, Jeremiah says. It's it's too close to, to what Jeremiah said, isn't it? In the Sabbath, the centering their life around God through deliberate rest and worship was to be a witness to the nations. But look at the passage again. Look at 15 through 16. Look at their witness to the nations. The Tyrians happily find a ready marketplace set up by the Jewish people here. What was all that effort to set up the temple and the walls if they weren't going to live marked off by God's word? It's like people coming to church, going through the motions in church, but not really interested in living for Christ. Why are you going? Who do you think that's for? It's not for God. See, these folks were tempted to have more money and more security at the expense. At the expense here's the cost of their relationship with God. To that action, there was a reaction. There was a cost to think through. Folks, hear the power of the warnings of God's word about the dangers of treasuring money and things. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Friends, those are just a few things God's word warns us about, treasuring things over God. Money will be a blessing to you or it will be a curse to you. It will be a tool in the hands of God's grace. It will be a doorway to bad and dangerous things. As one author put it, Like two sides of a physical coin, there are two spiritual sides to money. Each side calls you. Each side holds before you a vision and promises. But Jesus said, friends, in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, Christ is the real treasure. Why do we need such commands from God's word? Why do we need to see stories of taking God out of the center and putting instead prophets and things and ourselves in the center because we are prone to build our own kingdoms. And if you don't know that about yourself, you are self-deceived this morning. We are prone to build our own little kingdoms. Kingdoms of wealth and possessions and make much of ourselves. We'll be tempted, church, to skip some on prioritizing Christ and worship and pursue more money and things and push God to the fringes. Think about the things you want so badly. Think of how you will sacrifice for those things. Think if you're willing to cut corners with God in your life to have it. Think about how intoxicating it can be to have productive work. I mean, some of you have known what it means to be successful in work. That's addictive. It's tempting us to move God out from the center. The temptation to base our identity and esteem on what we produce is all but irresistible. And the command to rest and remember God is a challenge to human productivity in our our thinking. Forgetting who was the one giving us the productivity to begin with. You see, it arrests and, and relativizes even the most demanding and consuming work for for anything which can be interrupted is not ultimate in in, in importance. Self-important people cannot tolerate this undercutting of their significance, as one author put it. I won't say that again. Self-important people cannot tolerate this undercutting of their significance. It's not just in gaining goods, friends. It's also in the realm of their own salvation. That's why some people... luck to a works-based righteousness they've got it they've got to have something to claim their own glory in. they cannot tolerate the undercutting of their significance forgetting that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone the only thing we contributed was the sin I did all the sinning he did all the saving Friends, we can push God right out of the center, place an idol in the middle to love, trust, and obey over him. And if you think this is not, not possible in your life, again, this is self-deception. Now, let me be clear. I'm not in any way, shape, or form arguing for a Sabbath law for the church because we go way beyond the spirit of the law. The law of Christ compels us to prioritize God in our lives uh, in everything. We, if we have more opportunities to gather as a church, we'll do it. It's not just about one day for us. Friends, Determined today to lean into God's wisdom and honor him. You can skip Sundays for profit, but at what cost? You can skip out on prioritizing worship, but at what cost? If you're willing to not steward your giving, for example, in a systematic, generous, and regular way, you're not seeking first God's kingdom, but your own. You have forgotten who has given you that check to begin with. Amen? That's right. God gave us those blessings. Don't take him out of the center. The assumption is that we can do it for a little while, forgetting that sin. You know, I could just I could skip and skim and do these things and, and, and defraud God with my life and with my talents and my stewardship for just a little while. We forget that sin has a hardening effect, though. As if we we can master it. Sin has a hardening effect. It can dull us. And then all of a sudden. You're in a serious conversation with your brothers and sisters. Maybe you're having to come by my office and say, my life is out of whack. Or worse, you can get so hardened in sin that you stop seeking God at all in truth. And that happens too. It happens to people who were once members of churches all across the United States, all across the world. The writer to the Hebrews is quoting and expounding the Proverbs when he says the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. And so we see here the correction of the Lord coming. If our priorities become confused and we start putting money and things ahead of God, then we must expect to be losers in that. We're not winning. We tell ourselves somehow we're winning, but we're not. God requires us to do our best in our labors, as you heard read from the law this morning, and then allow him to do the rest, of course. He has to give the increase. He has to give the life. He has to do all those things we don't see. We are to work hard for the glory of God and then learning to trust God by resting as we're supposed to rest. Some of us need to rest and to worship, prioritize him, showing the world how Jesus makes all the difference so Nehemiah warns them here, and Jesus, though, warns the world, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Thank God that Jesus left the glories of heaven in a sense of putting on human nature, body and soul, to live poor for our sake so that we would gain profit from his perfect life in payment for our sins. His resurrection is proof there is a prophet for all those who by grace repent and trust in Him. Friends, center your life on God, not yourself. Number one was prophet. Number two, profaning. Profaning. Again, the feel of the text here of the, of the storyline is a collision now. There's a collision. You know, good leaders go meet trouble head on, not loving quarrels, but loving the plain agreed upon truths. And if you aspire to be a leader, a true leader, you have to have God's word in you and with you. And you have to know what's clear and egregious. Nehemiah does. And I've met men who see themselves as leaders, but they lack either courage when it's needed or they lack conviction or what's key here. They lack self-awareness about what is clear. Nehemiah learned, gained wisdom from him. He has clarity. He's going to confront what's plain, uh, what's egregious. And so you look at verses 17 and 18. He rebukes the nobles for allowing this. So somebody had to sit back and do nothing. Somebody had to sit back and say nothing about this. And he goes to the nobles for allowing business on the Sabbath day. Instead of using their positions for good, they sat back and did nothing like passive, weak, spineless men reminding them that the nation's violation of the Sabbath was the cause of their captivity. You know, this had to make Nehemiah somewhat unpopular to do this. And my goodness, what if we had leadership in areas of government today that were prepared to stand up and say no to people's selfish interests? Can you imagine? You know, I don't have to be a woman to care about the death of babies in the womb. Americans didn't have to be Jewish to care about the Holocaust, did they? Nehemiah was not involved in these business dealings. He didn't have a financial stake. They could have said, what's it to you, Nehemiah? He was concerned about the larger principle of, God, of God's people honoring their word to keep the Sabbath holy. And so the word rebuked is often used in covenantal lawsuits. And so Nehemiah contends with them about their violation of their covenant with God. And you've got to know, dislike of the Sabbath was nothing new in the life of ancient Israel. 300 years earlier, Amos had accused Israel of, of chafing at the sh- shutting down of business on the Sabbath. 150 years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah had described beasts of burdens, a burden carrying loads in and out of the city, as I mentioned earlier. I read this story in, uh, in Warren Rearsby's uh, commentary on this, and I wanted to share with you what uh, the late uh, Warren Rearsby said about this section. Talking about the profaning... And, and how we can treat these things lightly, and he says this. In one of the churches I pastored, a lovely young couple began to attend with their little boy. Then I noticed that only the mother and son were attending, so I stopped at the home to see what had happened to the father. I learned that he had taken a second job on weekends so he could save enough money to get a better house. The wife confided that they really didn't need the extra money or a new house, but it was her husband's idea, and she couldn't stop him. The tragedy is the extra money didn't go to a new house; it went to doctors and hospitals. The little boy contracted an unusual disease that required special medicine and care, and the father's extra income helped pay the bill. I'm not suggesting that every family with a sick child is unfaithful in their stewardship, or that God makes children suffer for the sins of their parents. But I'm suggesting that nobody can rob God and prof- profit from it. End "Quote." Nehemiah's contemporaries were in danger. He says, he, he warns them here of stirring up God's just response against them. God had been so kind to them and to do what they were doing was to insult him, to slap at him. What Nehemiah is preaching here, friends, is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Friends, we forget that. Sometimes we're, we're almost scared to bring it up in a church to preach that we should Respect the Lord. We should not disrespect him. He is holy. Friends, sin is our rebellion against God. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's failing to treat God as God. It's doing what we want rather than what he wants. It's looking at our creator and saying, go jump. All of us need to have reverence for God, but there's no fear of God in us naturally. Uh, none of us were born with the fear of God in us naturally. The Spirit works that into our hearts. There's not faith in God in us. There's no love for God in truth in us naturally, friends. We are all in serious danger in our sins. Outside of God's grace, I'm telling you, if you're here this morning, if you don't know Christ, God's word says you're in serious danger. You see, we forget that God is love. But we also forget that God is just. And that he has the authority and the right to cast sinners into hell. The stupidest thing we can do is think we will not die and that we won't face God. That's so stupid. And the question is, will you meet him in the profanity of your sin? Or will you stand forgiven through his one and only son, Jesus Christ? See, we're all profane in God's sight. Worse than we could possibly imagine we are either living a life of wildness or we live a life of self-righteousness thinking God's obligated to serve us in our pride. You see, there are many quote put this in quotes, good people, way better than me, who are so lost because they do not fear the Lord. They want God to respect them and, they, and hold them in high esteem as if they are who they are without God's grace. God, you owe me, look how good I was. Boasting in His presence, you see, all sin though is profane in God's holy sight, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus was profaned by man; He was profaned by our sins as He bore them on the tree, paying the debt of justice we could not bear except for an eternity in hell. Friends, we need Christ. You see, celebrating the Sabbath back then, there was a couple of things it did. It looked backwards and it looked forwards. It, both, it looks back to creation and looks forward to the experience of rest that God would usher in through Messiah. You see, the fall, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it shattered mankind's participation in that blessing and security and relief from this kind of labor, this toil, and this curse. And so by imitating the Lord's Creation rests in observing his Sabbaths. The Israelites foreshadow his creative and redemptive goal, a divine human relationship to which humanity shares in the blessings of God's rest. The Bible begins with a garden and it ends in a garden. Hebrews 4 says it like this. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest and has rested from his own works Just as God did from his, let us then make every every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. What rest was the author of Hebrews talking about? He's talking about Jesus. The call of the New Testament is not to focus uh, primarily on a, a physical rest as a law, but not miss out on eternal life, peace and blessing, eternal rest through Jesus Christ our Lord. B.B. Warfeld said it like this, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him, brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him, and on the resurrection morn. Aren't you looking for rest? Rest for your soul. The, the eternal rest. We will uh, have eternal life with, with God. You have to repent of your sins today and trust not in your own righteousness, but rest in Jesus. Put all your hopes on him. He can bear them. He can bear him for any and all who repent and believe. He's sufficient. Center your life around God and not yourself. Number three, preventing. Preventing. Verses 19 through 21. Again, look at the scenes, the picture of making no provision for sin. That's the picture here, friends. That's the picture. Nehemiah is an illustration to us all of how to pluck out and prevent what is profaning and offensive. It's about, he teaches us in in his storyline how to be killing sin. So look at what he does. He ordered the city gates shut on the Sabbath day. The guards had been willing to open the gates to the Gentile merchants, possibly because they were bribed. Nehemiah put his own servants on duty. He ordered the Levites to set a good example then on the Sabbath day and minister to the people. And he notes the compliance may be uh, he knows that this could be just be uh, formally given. Um, but merchants camped outside the gates on the Sabbath in order to ensure that they, look at the text, that they would be the first inside after the gates were opened. What's his response? He goes, I warn them. You know, why do you lodge outside? The, if you do so again, I'll use force. You know what that means? Maybe your translation says it out there today. I'm going to lay hands on you. And so from that time on, they didn't come in on the Sabbath. Nehemiah had that kind of government authority. He was governor. He was willing to get tough on the situation to, get the, to keep the people focused on the Sabbath purposes. So let me be clear. The text is not calling us to go lay hands on anybody today, all right? Not to get violent towards someone, but a call to get violent if necessary against spiritual threats in our lives. That's what it should be teaching us in wisdom. Friends, the Bible reveals we're to guard ourselves against our own tendency to sin. To guard your heart is not because your heart's so sweet and just protect it. No, the heart is like trying to go after what's what's wicked. The heart is lustful, deceitful. We need to take this to keep it on lockdown. To follow our hearts is the worst thing we could do. Don't do follow, don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. We to make no provision, the Bible says, for the flesh, for our sinful impulse. We are at war against our desires the world, and the devil. But friends, you know what we do? Little patterns we get into? We cuddle our little sins sometimes. We'll nurse it like a baby. We'll, fe- we'll foster it in our lives. You pick it. Pick your poison. It could be greed. It could be lust. It could be envy, bitterness, malice. We'll nurture it instead of kill it. Friends, one of the dark forces you need to put on notice today in your life. Nehemiah put them on notice. We need to put sin on notice in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is it it friends or certain people you know that are terrible for your life, terrible for your family and well-being? Take it to them. Push that stuff out if it's causing you and your family to be under the influence of the wicked one. Is it media? People seem so lost on this subject. We can't live without a smartphone. Friends, why not make the smartphone dumb if it's causing you to lust and to waste time and to become more anxious? I'm preaching to myself too, beloved. Are there movies and shows you are binging, ladies, that you know you shouldn't be putting before your eyes? Is it a job in your life, folks, that's killing the spiritual life of your home, parents? What's keeping you from having a full Lord's Day? What's keeping you from having Christ at the center? What's keeping you from treasuring Jesus more? Friends, go home today and talk about things to prevent. You may need to prevent from, uh, before it's too late. You see, Jesus... In his incarnation, the, the, sec- the second person of the Trinity in his incarnation, Jesus prevented sin in his human life by staying close to the Father in communion, fighting the devil with the scriptures, and leaning into the Spirit. He shows us the way to more victory, first in himself and his sacrifice, second, by following his way. Number four, we center our life on God and ourselves. Number four, praying. Number four, praying. The feel here is that of, you know, shut out the nonsense and focus on the one who upholds all things. Uh, Nehemiah, he wants the people to focus on God, seek him in prayer. And Nehemiah prays here too, and he teaches us how to, how to focus on God in prayer. You notice there in verse 22, he gives that solemn charge, renew your devotion to God, to, you know, uh, consecrate themselves to 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 guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. And so the noise of buying and selling on God's day was a distraction to the temple worshipers and rob the Sabbath of its purpose of the adoration of God. So when it comes to time to seek the Lord, you've got to find somewhere to quiet out everything else, don't you? You have to get alone with God. And we as a church set up time to separate and focus on God. So Nehemiah does that here. And so in his own prayer, he he refers, look at his own prayer there. He refers to what he's done simply as a token of his integrity and sincerity of ministry. A proof of his genuineness as a servant of the Lord, of the servant of God. Evidence of him living out the pastoral commitment to which he's been speaking. And what makes a man of God is first and foremost, look 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 at how he prays. It's his vision of God. It's the revelation of God that he has Taken upon him into his own heart, believed, trusted, and said back to God. Look at at that verse. Look at verse 22. How does he refer to God? Well, while we've gathered today to praise our compassionate and loving God, some of you, you need to hear today that God loves you. God loves you. He cares about you. He cares enough about you to tell you the truth. He cares enough about us not to let us continue to put ourselves at the center like complete idiots that we can do and put him at the center. And so Nehemiah references God's compassion in association with his faithful love, reminding us of what Bill read to us this morning from Exodus 34. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the covenant language. Steadfast love refers to God's special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself in an unbreakable covenant bond. And the word faithfulness gets at it too. He will never throw his hands up in the air despite all the reasons he gives his people to do so. He refuses even to entertain the notion of forsaking his redeemed people who deserve to be or of withdrawing his heart from us in Christ the way we do to others who hurt us. He is not simply existing in large-hearted covenant commitment, but abounding in it. His determined commitment to his people never runs dry. There's only one way to know that love. is through Jesus. Why would you miss out on this love? You want to abide in God's love and rest? You have to trust in Jesus. Christ's saving work has transformed the weekly Sabbath. It's no longer the seventh day of the week, but the first day. It's no longer the Sabbath, but the Lord's day. It's because the apostles observed their day of worship and rest on the day that Jesus rose from the dead. You can see that in John 20 and Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16. You know what Jesus said about himself? I am Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. He is the source of the deep rest we need. And he has come to completely change the way we rest. The one day a week rest we take is just a taste, just a taste of the divine deep rest we need. And we know the source. His name is Jesus. Cast yourself upon Jesus today. Church. Do it fresh and anew. Recommit yourself. Throw yourself at Jesus again. Remember, he welcomes any sinner. He comforts his people. Let me close. Sabbath keeping attacks any hint of human centeredness or self-sufficiency. Lack of rest can be a sign of great pride. None of this is intended to undercut human effort in the Sabbath or undercut attentiveness or passion, diligence, or responsibility. Human activity must always be subservient to the overreaching plan and power of God. And as one author put it, while best-selling self-help books tell us that the universe will rearrange itself to give us whatever we want, if we exercise the power of positive thinking, God condemns this blasphemous lie and frees us from the impossible role of playing God. He calls us to the freedom and Sabbath rest in Christ. The focus of the Sabbath is ultimately upon Jesus Christ. Do not be confused. Turn your eyes upon Jesus And his good rule. Submit to him. Center your lives on him. Will the universe rearrange itself for us? No. The universe answers to the one who upholds it by the word of his power. Let's pray. Lord, we are tempted. We're tempted to treasure other things, to put ourselves at the center, to play God, forgetting you. God, this is wicked in your sight. We turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter and finisher of our faith the one who perfectly obeyed in our place, who died in our place, was raised in our place, ascended to heaven, Lord, for us, who's coming again for us. Let all we do be for your glory. Let our lives be centered on you until we enter that heavenly rest by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's open our hymnal to hymn number 506.